Chapter Seven of Parnassus on Wheels. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Parnassus on Wheels by Christopher Morley. Chapter Seven. Andrew is just as thin as I am fat, and his clothes hang on him in the most comical way. He is very tall and shambling, wears a ragged beard and a broad Stetson hat, and suffers amazingly from hay fever in the autumn. In fact, his essay on hay fever is the best thing he ever wrote, I think. As he came striding up the road, I noticed how his trousers fluttered at the ankles as the wind plucked at them. The breeze curled his beard back under his chin, and his face was quite dark with anger. I couldn't help being amused. He looked so funny. "'The sage looks like Bernard Shaw,' whispered Mifflin. "'I always believe in drawing first blood.' "'Good morning, Andrew,' I called cheerfully. "'Want to buy any books?' I halted Pegasus, and Andrew stood a little in front of the wheel, partly out of breath and mostly out of temper. "'What on earth is this nonsense, Helen?' he said angrily. "'You've led me the deuce of a chase since yesterday. "'And who is this, this person you're driving with?' "'Andrew,' I said, "'you forget your manners.' Let me introduce Mr. Mifflin. I have bought his caravan and am taking a holiday selling books. Mr. Mifflin is on his way to Port Vigor, where he has taken the train to Brooklyn. Andrew stared at the professor without speaking. I could tell by the blaze in his light blue eyes that he was thoroughly angry, and I feared things would be worse before they were better. Andrew is slow to wrath but a very hard person to deal with when roused. And I had some inkling by this time of the professor's temperament. Moreover, I am afraid that some of my remarks had rather prejudiced him against Andrew, and as a brother at any rate, and apart from his excellent prose. Mifflin had the next word. He had taken off his funny little cap, and his bare skull shone like an egg. I noticed a sort of fairy ring of tiny drops around his crown. "'My dear sir,' said Mifflin, "'the proceedings look somewhat unusual, but the facts are simple to narrate. Your sister has bought this van and its contents, and I have been instructing her in my theories of dissemination of good books. You, as a literary man—' Andrew paid absolutely no attention to the professor— and I saw a slow tinge flush Mifflin's shallow cheek. "'Look here, Helen,' said Andrew. "'Do you think I propose to have my sister careening around the state with a strolling vagabond? Upon my soul, you ought to have better sense, and at your age and weight. I got home yesterday and found your ridiculous note. I went to Mrs. Collins, and she knew nothing. I went to Mason's and found him wondering who had bilked his telephone.' I suppose you did that. He had seen this freight car of yours and put me on the track. But, my God, I never thought to see a woman of forty abducted by gypsies. Mifflin was about to speak, but I waved him back. Now see here, Andrew, I said. You talk too quickly. A woman of forty, you exaggerate, by the way, who has compiled an anthology of six thousand loaves of bread, and dedicated it to you, deserves some courtesy. When you want to run off on some vagabond tour or other, you don't hesitate to do it. 
"'You expect me to stay home and do the Lady Eglatine in the poultry-yard. "'By the ghost of Susan B. Anthony, I won't do it. "'This is the first real holiday I've had in fifteen years, "'and I'm going to suit myself.' "'Andrew's mouth opened, but I shook my fist so convincingly that he halted.' I bought this Parnassus from Mr. Mifflin fair and square for four hundred dollars. That's the price of about thirteen hundred dozen eggs, I said. I had worked this out in my head while Mifflin was talking about his book. The money's mine, and I'm going to use it in my own way. Now, Andrew McGill, if you want to buy any books, you can parlay with me. Otherwise, I'm going on my way. You can expect me back when you see me. I handed him one of Mifflin's little cards, which were in a pocket at the side of the van, and gathered up the reins. I was really angry, for Andrew had been both unreasonable and insulting. Andrew looked at the card and tore it in halves. He looked at the side of the Parnassus, where the fresh red lettering was still damp. "'Well, upon my word,' he said, "'you must be crazy.' He burst into a violent fit of sneezing, a last touch of hay fever, I suspect, as there was still goldenrod in the meadows. He coughed and sneezed furiously, which made him madder than ever. At last he turned to Mifflin, who was sitting bald-headed with a flushed face and very bright eyes. Andrew took him all in, the shabby Norfolk jacket, the bulging memorandum book in his pocket, the stuffed portmanteau under his foot, even the copy of Happiness and Hayseed, which had dropped to the floor and lay back up. "'Look here, you,' said Andrew. "'I don't know by what infernal arts you cajoled my sister away to go vagabonding in a huckster's wagon, but I know this, that if you've cheated her out of her money, I'll have the law on you.' I tried to insert a word of protest, but matters had gone too far. The professor was as mad as Andrew by now. "'By the bones of Piers Plowman,' he said, "'I had expected to meet a man of letters and the author of this book,' he held up happiness and hayseed. "'But I see I was mistaken. I tell you, sir, a man who would insult his sister before a stranger as you have done is an oaf and a cad.' He threw the book over the hedge, and before I could say a word, he had vaulted over the wheel and ran round behind the van. "'Look here, sir,' he said, with his little red beard bristling. "'Your sister is over age and acting of her own free will. "'By the bones of the Baptist, "'I don't blame her for wanting a vacation "'if this is the way you treat her. "'She is nothing to me, sir, and I am nothing to her, "'but I propose to be a teacher to you. "'Put up your hands and I'll give you a lesson.' "'This was too much for me.' I believe I screamed aloud and started to clamor from the van, but before I could do anything the two fanatics had begun to pummel each other. I saw Andrew swing savagely at Mifflin, and Mifflin hit him square on the chin. Andrew's hat fell on the road. Peg stood placidly, and Bach made as if to grab Andrew's leg, but I hopped out and seized him. It was certainly a weird sight, I suppose I should have wrung my hands and had hysterics, but as a matter of fact I was almost amused. It was so silly. Thank goodness the road was deserted. Andrew was a foot taller than the professor, but awkward, 
loosely knit and unmuscular, while the little red beard was as wiry as a cat. Also, Andrew was so furious that he was quite beside himself, and Mifflin was in the cold anger that always wins. Andrew landed a couple of flailing blows on the other man's chest and shoulders, but in thirty seconds he got another punch on the chin, followed by one to the nose that tumbled him over backwards. Andrew sat on the road fishing for a handkerchief, and Mifflin stood glaring down at him, but looking very ill at ease. Neither of them said a word. Bach broke away from me and capered and danced about Mifflin's feet as if it were all a game. It was an extraordinary scene. Andrew got up, mopping his bleeding nose. Upon my soul, he said, I almost respect you for that punch, but by Jove I'll have the law on you for kidnapping my sister. You're a fine kind of pirate. Mifflin said nothing. Don't be a fool, Andrew, I said. Can't you see that I want a little adventure of my own? Go home and bake six thousand loaves of bread, and by the time they're done I'll be back again. I think two men of your age ought to be ashamed of yourselves. I'm going off to sell books. And with that I climbed up into the seat and clucked to Pegasus. Andrew and Mifflin and Bach remained standing in the road. I was mad all the way through. I was mad at both men for behaving like schoolboys. I was mad at Andrew for being so unreasonable, yet in a way I admired him for it. I was mad at Mifflin for giving Andrew a bloody nose, and yet I appreciated the spirit in which it was done. I was mad at myself for causing all the trouble, and I was mad at Parnassus. If there had been a convenient cliff handy, I would have pushed the old thing over it. But now I was in for it, and just had to go on. Slowly I rolled up a long grade, and then saw Port Vigor lying ahead, and the broad blue stretches of the sound. Parnassus rumbled on with its pleasant creak, and the mellow sun and the sweep of the air soon soothed me. I began to taste salt in the wind, and above the meadows two or three seagulls were circling. Like all women, my angry mood melted into a reaction of exaggerated tenderness, and I began to praise both Andrew and Mifflin in my heart. How fine to have a brother so solicitous of his sister's welfare and reputation! And yet how splendid the little scrawny professor had been! How quick to resent an insult, and how bold to avenge it! His absurd little tweed cap was lying on the seat, and I picked it up almost sentimentally. The lining was frayed and torn. From my suitcase in the van I got out a small sewing kit, and, hanging the reins on a hook, I began to stitch up the rents as Peg jogged along. I thought with amusement of the quaint life Mr. Mifflin had led in his caravan of culture. I imagined him addressing the audience of Whitman disciples in Camden, and wondered how the fuss ended. I imagined him in his beloved Brooklyn strolling in Prospect Park and preaching to chance comers his gospel of good books. How different was his militant love of literature from Andrew's quiet satisfaction! And yet how much they really had in common! It tickled me to think of Mifflin reading aloud from Happiness and Hayseed and praising it so highly, 
just before fighting with the author and giving him a bloody nose. I remembered that I should have spoken to Andrew about feeding the hens, and reminded him of his winter undergarments. What helpless creatures men are, after all. I finished mending the cap in high good humor. I had hardly laid it down when I heard a quick step in the road behind me, and looking back there was Mifflin, striding along with his bald pate covered with little beads of moisture. Brock trotted stately at his heels. I halted Peg. Well, I said, what's happened to Andrew? The professor still looked a bit shamefaced. The sage is a tenacious person, he said. We argued for a bit without much satisfaction. As a matter of fact, we nearly came to blows again, only he got another waft of goldenrod which started him sneezing, and then his nose began to bleed once more. He is convinced that I am a ruffian, and said so in excellent prose. Honestly, I admire him a great deal. I believe he intends to have the law on me. I gave him my Brooklyn address in case he wants to follow the matter up. I think I rather pleased him by asking him to autograph happiness and hayseed for me. I found it lying in the ditch. Well, I said, you two are certainly a great pair of lunatics. You both ought to go on the stage. You'd be as good as Weber and Fields. Did he give you an autograph? He pulled the book out of his pocket. Scrawled in it in pencil were the words, I have shed blood for Mr. Mifflin, Andrew McGill. I shall read the book again with renewed interest, said Mifflin. May I get in? By all means, I said. There's Port Vigor in front of us. He put on his cap, noticed that it seemed to feel different, pulled it off again, and then looked at me in quaint embarrassment. You are very good, Miss McGill, he said. Where did Andrew go? I asked. He set off for Shelby on foot, Mifflin answered. He had a grand stride for walking. He suddenly remembered that he had left some potatoes boiling on the fire yesterday afternoon, and said he must get back to attend to them. He said he hoped you would send him a postal card now and then. Do you know, he reminds me of Thoreau more than ever. He reminds me of a burnt cooking pot, I said. I suppose all my kitchenware will be in a horrible state when I get home. End of chapter 7